Lucky Ladies Podcast, exploring female curiosity, perseverance, and feats of excellence. Hosted by Jess Cat. Today on Lucky Ladies, I'm talking with Dr. Nessine Steckless. She is an associate professor of practice in animal and comparative biomedical sciences. Uh, Netzine holds degrees in anthropology, biology, ecology, and evolutionary biology, as well as a PhD in ethology and evolutionary psychology, which I want to ask her about because I'm not sure I know what that is. (laughs) Um, She served on the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund International for a very long time, and we're going to talk about mountain gorillas today. And her research has spanned uh, all sorts of animals, including baboons, howler monkeys, wild chimpanzees, mountain gorillas, and even domesticated animals such as dogs and horses, etc. So we have a lot to talk about today. Uh, Netzine, thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here, Jess. It's going to be fun. Yes, it is going to be fun. So I am an animal lover. It sounds like you are as well. So we will definitely get into all the animal studies you've been involved in. But first, I do, I like to go back with my guests and ask some questions about your history. Um, I'm really curious to find out where you grew up, sort of what your childhood was like and what drew you to working with animals. Uh, wow. Well, I, I would call myself a little wild child growing up uh, in Texas. You know, I those were the days where you could disappear for all day long and your parents weren't worried about it. Um, I grew up along the Rio Grande, so I was always out exploring. Uh, literally, I think about it now, I'm like, my parents didn't know. I was miles and miles away just exploring and they didn't know, but um, I was just like that all the time. Part of it was that I must say, gr- I grew up in a Montessori system, mm-hmm. Montessori schools, and there's no homework. So I had I had the time to go explore every single day, you know, so I would, and I went to school, I was in Texas, but I would cross the border to Mexico to go to school. Oh, wow. Parents wanted us to be bilingual, bicultural, bilingual. My mom is Mexican. My dad is, you know, Texan American. So they wanted us to be bilingual. So we were crossing the other way, you know, going to Mexico for school and then coming home. And then I would just explore. So I was always watching animals. I was probably that kid that you were, where, you know, there was a little baby birdie that fell out of its nest and we had to nurse it back. And, you know, all those things, watching ants where they went, uh, just constantly doing that kind of thing. There was horse stables. So I would just hang out there and learn about every animal I could find. So there was a, there was an inherent draw there. And I'm curious to know from you, you know, was there always this attraction to animals when you were young? Yeah, so it's interesting you say that. Um, I mean, I was drawn to animals, domesticated animals, only because, you know, we always had dogs and my father was a horseman. He was into horses. So I started riding horses at a young age. And I think when you spend time around horses, you really do have to learn to be in tune to animals because they're such sensitive animals. Um, but I wasn't like, you know, I didn't grow up in a rural area. I wasn't around a lot of wild animals. Cause I grew up in upstate New York. It was very suburban, you know, none mm-hmm. of that, like, but it sounds like yours was a little bit wilder. Like you had a little more freedom to be out and about in the world. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was suburban, but because it was so close to this real grand area that was kind of wild, I could just, you, you know, you jump on a horse and just go riding for, for days along the real grand. So so it was, it, it was a nice, nice upbringing. Yeah. Um, 
Why primates though? I mean, I, for, I just grew up around, you know, spent all my time with horses as you did, loved animals. And so my dad sat me down one time and he goes, you know, you're spending an awful lot of time there. And he goes, you know what? There's really no future with horses. There's oh, just really? no future with horses. And, I'm, and he, was, he was a professor of anthropology. He was an archeologist um, and very science and evolutionary oriented. And he just said, you know, you not need to think about you know, what you want to do. There was never any question about college. Of course you were going to college and of course you were paying for it because he's not going to pay for it on a professor's salary with four kids, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. so that was all an, just an inherent expectation. Um, but I think it's his library that really turned me on to primates. Mm. So I really, um, I didn't like have a fixation about Jane Goodall or, Diane Fossey or these great women in primatology that really hadn't quite emerged yet. But he did have a great library. And in his library, he had a whole section on animal behavior, especially primate behavior and primate sociality as a model for human sociality. Because he was an anthropologist and an evolutionary anthropologist. So he was always looking at humans as a social animal and trying to figure them out. And I just love that section because I love the animals. Yeah. yeah. I just love the prime, the pictures of the primates and the, and when he said, okay, so, you know, you have to think about college, where do you want to go? And, uh, I just went to my favorite book Yeah, <laughs> and I picked it up and I liked the cover. I liked the content. I liked the, the way it was written or something. I liked it. And, and I said, well, where's, where's that person? Where's the author? You know, hey. and it happened to be, a, a Gene Altman, um, baboon uh, parenting, baboon mothers and infants is the name of the book. And she was at the University of Chicago. So I said, that's where I'm going. So, and I just, I only applied to that one college to get wow. <laughs> work. And I arrived, I think I, I was 16 because I had skipped a grade or something. So I, I left for college at 16. I arrived with my boots and my jeans and I just walked into her lab and I said, I love your work. Can I just, can I just help and work out here? You know? So <laughs> oh my gosh. And that was just, that's how it went. I just went with it, you know? Oh my gosh. Okay. So first of all, that story, there's so many great lessons there. Number one is that really anything can drive your curiosity, whether it's a book or a person or, you know, being out in the wild and you see something interesting to you. This is a, a message that I often try to highlight on this podcast is it's so I've talked to so many different women and the way that they found their curiosity is they're all so different. You know, these stories are all so different, which I love, but also just having the having the courage to not necessarily know exactly what's going to come of this, but you know that you like this person's work you know that there's something about it that draws you. And so you're going to go for it. I just love no, just, you know, that, and that's a really, that never hit me until I think, you know, someone said, oh, you always knew you were going to be a professor because your dad was a professor. I'm like, whoa, I had never thought I was going to be a professor. I had no plan for a career. All I followed was I loved animals. And he, he did stop the whole equine trajectory, but it was animals. So mm -hmm. And it circles back. I now teach equine science, which is kind of funny, which is <laughs> yeah, sorry. dad kind of, it, it did work out. So, <laughs> but, uh, but that my going to college and working with them and then all the subsequent field experiences, I never had an eye on being a professor or this. I was just going with 
what I love doing yeah. and trying to make a living doing it. That's it. That, yeah. And, uh, and there could be a fault to that and that I had no plan financial planning. You know, I, I wasn't really thinking about the finances. Our family never had a lot of money. So I wasn't, it wasn't a problem to not have money. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but just, just keep keeping on that, that, uh, the passion for that one, that one aspect of myself, which was animals. Yeah. That led to so many decisions that when I think about even changes in careers and stuff, it was just led by that, that passion. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. It's so fascinating for me. It happened later. It was, you know, after my freshman year of college, but once I hooked into geology, it was similar. I didn't really know what geologists did or what job I might get or, you know, and that was the first question that family was asking me when I switched my major to geology. What are you going to do with that degree? I didn't really care. I just knew that I was fascinated by the earth and rocks. And I thought, why not? This is what I want to study. <laughs> Yeah. And nowadays it's, it's like, why, why even ask what job? Because the jobs are going to change so drastically over your lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, and you can also create a niche for yourself. You know, a lot of the jobs that I've had, they, there wasn't like a job out there for me to go for it. You kind of create the job as you go along, you create your own niche. I mean, that's what happens in that's what happens with animals all the time. They create their own niche and survive and create and make a way of living uh, in whatever circumstances they're in. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. Right. I mean, and we have to be more adaptable now, especially with what's going on in the world. It's like, wow, you know, the job that I thought I knew and loved isn't the same, even as it was a year ago. So that's true. That's a good point. Um, so you go to Chicago and you, you do your, uh, was that your, was that graduate work or undergraduate? That was undergrad, man, a Texas girl in freezing Chicago, big city. Yeah, that was a shocker. And I was still this explorer. So I was like, you know, University of Chicago, if you know where that is, it's in a really bad part of town. It's a very kind of a dangerous section of Chicago. Okay. I was out wandering around all the time. The police would stop me and say, you need to get inside. <laughs> Boy. <laughs> so I just was not used to big city life. You know, I was, but, um, but I loved Chicago. I mean, the, it opened, uh, you know, another world. Every piece of the world is represented somewhere in Chicago. And that's, I went exploring there too. So I would go to little Cuba and go dancing. And then I'd go over here to go blues and to, you know, it was just, it was really fun, but way too cold for me. Oh. Way too cold. Yes. Yeah, yeah I hear that. <laughs> so you make your way then to Princeton, is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so, um, after working with the, the Altmans for quite a while, and then I had some field experience going to Costa Rica and living in Costa Rica. And, uh, and I was looking for a graduate school because I was kind of embarking on more of this behavioral ecology, you know, understanding animal behavior within this wild setting. I really wanted to crack that nut. Um, and especially for primates. Yeah. And, and, and uh, Princeton had a great you know, uh, EEB program, you know, ecology and evolutionary biology. And I just so happened to meet my future husband who was down the road at Rutgers University. Mm -hmm. So I thought it, it just really aligned. I wanted to go to Princeton. I applied there. I, you know, I, I, I got in uh, and, and then my sweetheart was just down the road at Rutgers University. So going to Princeton then is when I uh, launched more into more of my 
wild child life and going out and living in the middle of Africa in a tent, uh, studying wild chimpanzees um, with then, you know, what became my husband. Uh, I mean, actually we were married during that study actually at some point i can't remember i remember honeymoon was in a tent for six months that's what i remember <laughs> all, right. all right so you know this is funny because you and i have a lot of parallels then because i also met my future husband at graduate school and he and i both were doing uh research in tibet so we went and spent months together in a tent on the Tibetan plateau in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we weren't married yet at the time and we'd only been together for less than a year, but that is, um, that is an interesting way to figure out if you are good with someone else. <laughs> oh, yes. I think, I think that should be required for everyone <laughs> before they get married. Cause I, we had lived in, you know, in Zaire and stuff in a tent. And if you can get along mm -hmm. in those horrific, you know, stressful, sometimes glorious, but sometimes really terrible circumstances, and you can work through it together as a team, you, I think you, it prepares you and you know, you can kind of get through the rest of life because there's going to be challenges and everything else in the rest of life. And I will say, I mean, we're married 31 years. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, I think that that tent challenge is a good one. <laughs> Yeah. So I'm curious because, um, you know, people ask me this a lot when they find out that I did field work in a remote place like that. Um, being a woman, did you have any sort of experiences that were sort of unique being a woman in that setting? Or were there a lot of women who were doing similar things in that part of the world? Interesting. Um, you know, primatology started attracting a lot of females mm -hmm. because of Jane Goodall and Diane Fossey. So we were getting an influx. And now when we're, we teach primatology, it's 90% women. Oh, okay. wow. But at that point, it was, it was still this not quite so women dominated. But the experience as a woman being in the field is very different than when you're a man. As sure. you know, different cultures treat women differently. And I would say in some situations, it could be dangerous. In other situations, it's tremendous advantage. Mm -hmm. And I found that I could find out a lot from talking to the women in the market about anything, about what's going on, is there any danger, about what's happening, anything, uh, because I was a woman. Yeah. And they weren't going to talk to a man about this. Mm -hmm. um, I will also say that I used kind of being a helpless woman to my advantage, helpless woman to my advantage, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because in some circumstances, you know, my husband and I are, were in very dangerous places sometimes, you know, with armed rebels and they stop your vehicle and they want to extort something. And we figured out this great skit, I will call it, uh, <laughs> that um, he quickly can bond with these guys with the arms and asking for money and stuff because I act as a very, either I'm sick and they immediately want to help yeah. or I am a very mean kind of nagging wife. Oh, wow. And they immediately uh, bond with my husband as someone who's a victim of this terrible woman. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so he'll end up having beers with them while I'm like, oh, you know, you know, nagging and doing all sorts. 
and then we'll just be on our way and they'll be our friends for the rest of the season. So. <laughs> oh my goodness. I never would have thought of that. We had an experience like that in Uganda when we were driving south to go to the see the mountain gorillas and we got pulled over and you know we're a band full of white people and um, they were trying to extort our driver and they wanted his driver's license and he wouldn't hand it over. And, you know, um, my cousin who was over there in the Peace Corps, he knew like the worst thing you can do is give them your passport or your driver's license because they'll just take it and then you got to pay to get it back. So, you know, we're sitting in the back ignorant to all of this thinking, why doesn't he just show them his license? You know, (laughs) why won't he show them? And my cousin, of course, is sitting there knowing this is not how you do it. Um, But it was the first time I had really experienced experience that in a place where things were so corrupt that you could just be pulled over for absolutely no reason. And we were there for over an hour trying to, you know, argue with these guys and it to no avail. You're right, Jess. And you're not used to that in this country. You know, you feel like you have recourse, you feel like there's laws and it's, it, I think it's good to go and live in these other places because when you come back, you don't take it for granted here. I mean, I really appreciate being an American. I don't care what the politics are right now. And I know it's hard for a lot of people, but still I would rather be in this country um, and know that my kids, you know, uh, at least there's, there's some amount of security, yeah. not all for all kids, I get that. But, right. but compared to other countries, I remember talking to women in, a, in, a, in Zaire, what used used to be called Zaire, which is now Democratic Republic of Congo, as you know, a place that's been fraught with constant rebels, constant changing of government and everything. And at the time, Mobutu was in charge and he's very well known for basically extracting from his country and not giving anything to the people. He was just a taker from his country. Um, Everyone knew that. And when I talked to the ladies in the, in the, the market, I said, you know, does it, does it, does it bother you that he's, taking all this gold, all these resources. And here, you know, we're barely scraping by just trying to eke out a living. And I remember one old, old woman, she said, you know what? It's better than being at war. Oh, wow. That at least he's taking all this stuff, but there is no war. There's no, you know, and I didn't think of that insecurity of which is what they're facing now with constant rebel groups fighting each other and then using civilians for soldiers or using them you know, for capturing. And that is more stressful than having a dictator that is taking stuff from your country and not providing anything from you, but that is maintaining um, this non-war state, you know? Oh gosh. That was a big lesson for me about appreciating you know, why they were, I was just so angry. Why aren't you standing up and saying something? Why aren't you doing something about it? You know, and now I understand as a mom, she's like, I, I know I, my kids are safe right now, you know? Wow. That is, that's deeply profound. And it does, it makes us have to think a lot about what we have. I, I had similar, not those exact experiences, but similar experiences that when I came back from Tibet, I was so thankful for what I have here. Um, and there, you know, those people are just, the most joyful people that I've ever met on the planet. And they have so little based on what we think of having things, right? You think of things, material things, money, you know, all of these resources, but the way that they were living their lives, they were just happy and connected to each other in a way that we don't really experience here with our own families. And it was something that really opened my eyes. Like, wow, this is, you can't take for granted. You just can't take what you have in your life for granted. 
Yeah, what a what, how interesting that is to. Uh, I, I like that 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 you expressed it that way. The, the kind of the joy of living without all this stuff, you know. And uh, yeah. I think yeah, we need to think more about that because there is. I think during even this time where we go don't get to see our friends and our family, I think we're all appreciating that a bit more. You know, the joy of going out biking or hiking or going yeah. to a restaurant with a friend and having a coffee. And that's so limited now. I think there's going to be a lot more people appreciating it. <laughs> well, and it cycles back to what you were talking about earlier about being a kid who really could just go out and explore and spend hours and hours outdoors and your parents weren't worried. And now, you know, as a parent, we live in a time where you could get arrested for letting your kid just be outside <laughs> day and going, you know, for miles and miles and you don't know where they are. And, um, and it's just such a shame. And I say it to my kids all the time, like, you know, yesterday was this beautiful day and it's a Sunday and they didn't, you know, they're in the house doing their stuff. And I'm like, don't oh, yeah. we'll be outdoors. And they're like, and do what? Well, you could go explore the wash behind the house. We've done that already. Okay. Well, you can go for a bike ride. We've done that already. So it's almost like now there always has to be something new, something different because they're so used to this entertainment that's constant, right? At their fingertips. And there's no just appreciation for being in the outdoors. So that is actually precisely what led to our big transition from Princeton and from doing all the chimp stuff and everything is that we, uh, we were married five years and we started, we wanted to have kids and we started having kids. You know, we started a family yeah. and we had to think really hard. What do we want our children to experience? We really yeah. thought about this a lot. And we were in New Jersey, living in Princeton, New Jersey and, you know, a very nice place and, across from the Princeton woods. So I was always taking our little boys into the Princeton woods, but the neighborhood, the, the kids that they were playing with never went into the woods. They, in fact, the biggest event in the neighborhood was for our son's like second birthday. I was taking all the kids into the woods across the street. Okay. Right. So I, and I, we finally decided I, I don't want my kids to grow up in a culture where they're spending all their time in the basement playing video games or this or that. So we actually started thinking about, well, where do we want, you know, if, if, if we're working in Africa and have to take a, a plane there, we can get a plane there from anywhere in the world. Where in the world do we want to be? Yeah. We wanted to stay in the U.S. because we appreciated the U.S. You know, my, my husband is also a, a, an immigrant from, from Germany. Uh, so he, he, you know, we knew a lot about the European. So every, any place in the world was open to us. I mean, we looked at South Africa, we looked at parts of Germany, we looked, we looked all over the world and we finally decided we really like the U.S. We like being close to the extended family. And so where in the U.S.? So we explored, we wanted to be in a, a wilder part. Yeah. We went, we drove any chance we got, we were just driving all over the Western United States, looking for that place that, and we found it. We found it, we knew it as soon as we saw it. Yeah. We knew it had to be near an airport, near a university, and something about the landscape that we were looking for. And we, you know, it was like a je ne sais quoi quality. We didn't know what it was, but we found it in Southern Arizona in the Sonoida grasslands. Mm. That's like 45 minutes, an hour south of Tucson. I don't know if anyone's ever been there. Yes. You know, it looks like Montana. I mean, it's grasslands, purple mountains, golden. As soon as we emerged in that valley, we're like, oop, found it, wow. found the place. Because we wanted our kids to grow up like wild child, like me, you know? Where can you do that? 
And we went back to Princeton, put a sign in the window for sale by owner. It was sold in a week, uh, came out to Southern Arizona. I mean, we had nothing to do with the University of Arizona. We just, this is how we wanted to raise our kids. And we bought a big piece of land and we had a little, little ranch and um, still was traveling to Africa to do all the work that we needed to do. But guess what? Those kids could go wandering for hours and hours, I kind of, you know, I, we knew all the neighbors, neighbors meaning like, you know, a quarter of a mile is each neighbor. So we knew they, where they were going and what they were. And I made it a point that they, they had to get bored in order to be creative. Mm. They just, you know, you needed the time and the space. So they, they ended up building things and yeah. making videos of little adventures, you know, that ended up being the, and I, and I would say I, I'm really, it was hard. I ended up having to homeschool for part of it because the schools weren't great. And yeah, but we just, uh, we made that decision because of this, we wanted them to enjoy that love of being outside and, and feeling like you could go and do, just go and do stuff. You don't need to be in walls. Yeah. And then we took them, we took them with us. No matter, our rule was we won't go anywhere unless we go as a family. We got married to be together and we had kids to be with our kids. Yeah. Right? We wanted to be a family unit, which was a big struggle because we'd get invited to give a talk. Oh, you know, give a talk at the UN, but we only want one of you to come or something. We're like, nope, it's all or nothing, all or nothing. Yeah. And we insisted. So our kids went everywhere. Uh, and yeah. they're, they're, they're citizens of the world. And I'm, I, I think that's, the best we can do you know you don't prepare them for a job you prepare them to be good citizens of the world so you actually took them with you when you would go do field work in africa absolutely yep yeah, yeah. Yep. How, how was that how did they do with that wow that was <laughs> well they're two rambunctious boys let me tell you yeah. but um you know some places they could not like when we would go work with gorillas uh, you actually can't go in to see gorillas if you're under 15. Mm -hmm. So um, guess what? They went with the anti-poaching patrol. Yeah. So they would go and just kind of patrol the area. We're in the gorillas doing our research and they were with an anti-poaching patrol doing a patrol around the area, you know, cutting snares or anything. So they were still out yeah. hiking and in the forest. They just couldn't be with, with those. Or sometimes like when we went to um, if you go to chimpanzees, you don't want really young, you know, they, they could be attacked by, by chimpanzees, just either out of curiosity or being startled. So in some situations they you know, they couldn't really be in with those primates, but everywhere else, you know, I remember looking for monkeys in Costa Rica with a backpack and one kid was in one backpack and I don't, and I, I'm like, what? Oh, that was crazy. We shouldn't yeah. have done that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 So they start going at a really young age then. Yeah. yeah. I took Wolf to Scotland for a meeting when he was four weeks old. Oh, wow. So they were, they've been, I think they, they, they they'll tell you, they love the smell of airports. <laughs> And they love hotels because they could jump on the beds. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, they find what works for them. Um, we actually, you know, we, we, for a long time, when we first got married, we were that way where we said, oh, our kids will go with us in the field no matter what. And it didn't work that way just because, you know, the travel to Tibet and we were just, there was a lot about it that was, has made us hesitant. And then, you know, my husband would go by himself and I would be home alone with the kids for four weeks, eight weeks, whatever it was by myself 
now they're at the age where we're coming up on another sabbatical in a couple of years and we want to go to Africa. And we're just like, are we going to take the kids? Of course, we're going to take the kids if it's a sabbatical. And they're giving us some resistance because they didn't grow up like your boys did. And so they're a little bit like, oh, we don't know if we want to do that. You know, there's some fear and some, yes, we're going to yeah. have to struggle with that. Like, do we really just make this happen because we want, think it's an important experience for them? Or do we, do we sort of change plans because we want to adapt to what works for them? Yeah. And I would, I mean, we even got resistance from our kids that grew up that way. I mean, that'd be like, okay, you know, we're going back to Rwanda. And they're like, again, you know, are you really saying that? Are you? And it's only now, I mean, they're now, you know, one's in graduate school, one's they're, they're college age-ish, you know, around that area. And it's only now looking back yeah. that they appreciate it. They certainly did not appreciate it while they were living it or being forced to go to Africa or, you know, yeah. but I think it's only in retrospect. And I, I mean, I really, I really, we thought a lot about the education of our kids because, you know, we had to take it on ourselves a lot. And so we really had to think, well, what is the, what is the curriculum for our children? Really? You know, <laughs> if it's not in someone else's hands and it's our hands, what is it that we value? What do, what do they need to learn? You know? So, uh, and I, I think just being a member of the world is, is part of it. And I wish we had this, the kind of the tradition that they have in Europe of this, of this year off to go explore. You know, we always ran into young people from Europe that were just backpacking through Africa or through Europe or whatever. And they really got a sense first of independence, you know, that they could, they can survive in a weird culture, Sure, you, can, you know, but you got to do it once or twice so that you feel that you can. Yeah. So we, I think get even exposed once. And that led to us then teaching, you know, once the kids were in college and stuff, we actually started a field school to take college kids to Africa, to Rwanda. We did that for, for 10 years. Oh, wow. And I can tell you the, the impact that that has had, I mean, we're still in contact with them. Mm -hmm. And they they'll they tell you, you, you know, that may, and then it's not like they became primatologists. I mean, some of them did, but it was that experience that just transformed what they thought they could be and do. Yeah. It has nothing to do with the, the discipline itself. Right. It was just getting out there, you know, it, yeah. And so getting, getting, I would say, yeah, even if they don't want to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I had the same experience doing field work in Tibet. I mean, I was not raised in the outdoors. My family were not campers or hikers or any of those things. And it was like, oh, you're going to go live for a hundred plus days in a tent in the middle of Tibet. And I just, you know, it was like, I was so afraid and terrified. And I thought I have to do this because this is going to really show me who I am and what I can and can't do and what I'm capable of. And so there, a lot of it was being driven by the experience itself of the expedition as much as, if not more than the geology that I was going to be exposed wow. to. Wow. So, that's courage to do that. I mean, yeah. it, it, it really does take to get out there the first time really is a courageous step. So yeah. I, well, I'm gonna have to come live with you in a tent in Tibet or hang out with you in Tibet and you come hang out with us in Africa. Okay. Yes, absolutely. So that's a great place to transition into the work that you do over there in Africa. I know you have worked with lots of different animals, but of course I contacted you because I was really curious about the mountain gorilla work because my husband and I have been to Uganda. We did the mountain gorilla trekking in, um, 
in Uganda, sort of right there at the border of the three countries there with the, the mountains. Um, and we, you know, we love the scenery because geologists, you know, there's volcanoes, the volcanoes are so gorgeous. And so we had that beautiful background, but then I had never been in a place like the impenetrable forest in my whole life. I mean, it was absolutely insane, just, you know, completely ridiculous. And then to just be cruising around and, and, oh, there's a gorilla and it's four feet away from you. And it's just sitting there eating leaves. And I mean, I, I think I've never in my life had such a profound sort of, um, feeling of appreciation for another species. And the fact that like, we think we're so special and we're just not, I mean, <laughs> those gorillas <laughs> did a number on me and I don't know much about them. So I really want to hear about some of the work you've done with mountain gorillas. Oh, they do a number on you. And they, you know what, they show you that they are special. We are special, but they're special to, you know, each, yes. each species is its own unique in, influence and capacities. And yeah. they, it just blows me away. And you probably had a moment where, first of all, being that close to such a large animal that is just peaceful with you, mm -hmm. the smell of it. I love the smell of it. I don't know if you remember the smell of the gorillas. It's just this gorgeous, musky, you yeah. know, not unpleasant, but very comforting, comforting to me. Okay. I'm weird. Let's just make, maybe call it that, but, no, <laughs> but it's, the, it's what, you know, and it's what you love. But when they look into your eyes, I don't know if you had a moment where they, you know, you can sometimes with some animals, you catch a gaze where it's not a threat and it's not a fear, but you catch each other's eyes. And when you do that with a gorilla, it just like, it pierces your soul. Like, you know, there is something very intelligent and sentient behind those eyes, you know? Yeah. Because yeah. they're probably thinking the same thing, you know. It's just there. It really is something. Is it, and it's a special moment to catch those instances of that that instant little connection there. Yeah. Um, and I and I, I like when I hear that people have had that because it, it it it's it's not something that you can read about in a paper. No, you know, it's right. you just experience that. And working to save these mountain gorillas. I mean, there was. You know, when Fossey was work was just doing research with mountain gorillas, Dr. Diane Fossey, she was struggling to just keep that population alive. There was, you know, 120 in the Barunga volcanoes that you're talking about. I mean, this was basically doomed to extinction. And because of efforts of anti-poaching patrols and starting tourism, the population, it is a success story. It's a conservation success story. We hear about so many conservation sad stories, you know, about species going extinct. This is a great story. The population is over a thousand now, you know, they're doing really, they're thriving. And it has to do a lot with those efforts, those early efforts. And then it continued yeah. 50 some years of continuous effort, not stopping, you right. know? Right. Uh, so for part of that story, uh, we came after Diane Fossey, but we were the last ones to live at her camp. Oh, wow. Because uh, then the genocide hit mm -hmm. and the whole world transformed in Rwanda, that whole region. Yeah. So we were the last ones. We lived in, in her camp and in, in the cabins that she built and uh, built some new ones. We had to actually dismantle the cabin. She was murdered in her cabin, um, you know, in the 80s. And uh, we actually were part of our work was to dismantle and rebuild that research cabin. So it was I mean, it was a very um, I think 
being there and living under those circumstances that this, this woman who was alone, yeah, right? most, I mean, she had the trackers and everything, but she was, she, talk about a wild child. I mean, this is, a, yeah. she was, she didn't grow up as a wild child. She, she grew up totally urban. Uh, her mother was a model, you know, fashion oriented, but man, she was way tougher than I could ever be way tougher. Yeah. Uh, psychologically, physically to be able to handle, you know, those volcanoes, come on, hiking those volcanoes is at 10,000 feet. Yeah. This is a challenge. Yeah. Now, I'm a runner and this was a challenge. So, um, so being in her shoes taught me a lot of fortitude about, wow, she was, she was so strong, so committed to these gorillas yeah. that drove her, uh, and, and her, her work then subsequently influenced my research direction because she, I had to work with her, her uh, field journals. Oh. I did a lot of work with her. So I was reading her field journals all the time. And, uh, and she had a lot of great intuitions about what the world was like for these gorillas. I mean, there was a social complexity and personality differences and why is she doing this and what? And she really had a great intuition about it. And a lot of the intuitions really kind of bore out later. They were, they were kind of validated later with re research studies. Yeah. But they, I saw elements of those in her field notes. And I kept thinking, how is it that some people are so good about you know, that, that understanding animals and, and really picking up on these little nuances? And, and so that, that led me to my, the, what I ended up doing my PhD in. My PhD is on humans. My yeah. PhD is evolutionary psychology of humans, right? Yeah. And what I study is this connection to animals. I call it animality instead mm -hmm. of personality. Okay. You have personality. Yep. And that kind of is a, a, a construct of all these different, these different, usually, you know, five dimensions, seven dimensions about how you manage the world and how you get along with other people. Yeah. But, but I'm showing that there is a consistent animality. People have different kinds of animality and how they relate to animals. Yeah. And you know, there's probably some people that are really good. Bossy is one of these really good with animals, not so good with people. Oh, okay. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. That's, yeah. Right? That's so it's not just a, it's not that they're just socially in tune or attuned other, you know, cause you could be socially attuned to humans and to, you know, to animals that should be the same, the same, uh, tool, but it's not because there's, I, you know, reading Fossey's notes in her letters, I can tell you, she was not good with people, Okay, <laughs> but she was really good with animals. Yeah. So yeah. And didn't, about, and didn't grow up with animals. Right. She never had pets. She never had any, she didn't even grow up with animals. So in your work, were you looking at with the mountain gorillas, the, their social interactions with each other, and then sort of translating with humans, or were you actually studying interactions between humans and animals? Oh, it's interesting. So at that time I was all fully focused on the primates and we ended up, um, oh, there's so many fascinating things. I mean, we studied their communication. My husband and I were, 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 have been colleagues on all these projects. So we studied their vocalizations, you know, some of these very deep rumbles that almost are like elephant rumbles, uh, very calming, beautiful kind of things that, that attract either a little baby or an infant or a, or a female. 
And then we really got involved with trying to understand something that just would capture anyone. And you might've seen this when you were with gorillas, you have this big, huge silverback, right? Twice as big as the females, he's huge. Mm -hmm. And you can find some silverbacks playing and wrestling and giggling and laughing with the little tiny infants. Yeah. Right? right? So yeah. gentle with them and tickling and wrestling and do, and this play behavior where we were just enthralled by it because, you know, not all animals play, not all fathers ever interact with their offspring. Right. We, we think of it as common because our fathers, you know, in humans, we have fathers that interact with their offspring. That's not true for most mammals. Yeah. So we became really intrigued by this it's a huge investment. This is a giant herbivore, right? He's, he's, a, he's a salad eating 500 pound animal. So he eats a lot of salad. Yeah. And he's investing time and energy in wrestling with his teenagers and with these little tykes and being very patient. And, you know, so we really got involved with understanding the, um, the function of play. Oh, and wow. that, that took us to, to working with with folks in family studies and the importance of play in humans. Oh my gosh. And especially the importance of father-child play in mm -hmm. humans. So I love this because, um, so I had that exact experience. It's, it's interesting though, because so for me who knew nothing about any of this, just going in as, you know, completely ignorant, I just want to see the gorillas. Uh, we were, we were with a group and we're watching the silverback and he was just sitting there with his back to us, had no interest, in, you know, he's doing his thing. And then down in front of us come three youngsters, like down out of the trees. And they just dropped in front of us within like a foot or two of where we were standing. They were not, so I don't know what you call them, infants or toddlers or youngsters or what, but they were, they were not attached to their moms. They were moving yeah. around, but they were small. I mean, they juvenile. were maybe juvenile. Yeah. And they were wrestling with each other and they were doing the sort of hitting on their chest a little bit. They were putting on a show for us for sure. And then they went over to the silverback and they started almost what you would call harassing him, right? They were poking at him and they were trying to get his attention and he would kind of turn his head and look at him and then go back to whatever he was eating or, you know, but I remember thinking, oh my gosh, that silverback's going to go crazy. He's going to get mad at them, right? He's good. Because I didn't know, like, do they interact with the young or not? And they seem so stoic and so strong and scary. And never once did that silverback seem bothered or, you know, he just, those, those little youngsters knew that they could climb on him. They could throw things at him. They could beat their chests in front of him. And he, it was almost like he was their safe place. Yep. And it was so cool to witness yeah, that's a special moment to see that. And it's not common, you know, it's not, yeah. it's not common in mammals is what I'm saying that to have, you know, the, the, the father, a big silverback, a big male to tolerating and sometimes even interacting and playing with them. So, and we even have silverbacks that if, the, if there's an infant that's orphaned, we'll take in the infant and let it sleep with it in its nest. And cause you know, they build a new nest every night. And so they, they're very caring. They're so, for such massive animals, they are so gentle. Um, even with us wimpy, you know, they know we're they know we're like the wimpiest yeah. things around. I mean, they, they, especially when, when silverbacks are young and they're trying to show off and, yeah. you know, as researchers, we're there all the time. And sometimes they, you know, I, I hope this doesn't happen anymore, but they were so used to us being around. They would kind of 
grab you by the backpack and take you for a spin as, 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 you know, what they would do like with a branch as a display, but oh. they would just take you for a spin, you know, <laughs> so, wow. never, ever, um, they could easily hurt us. Yeah. And I mean, I have lots of stories of where they could, you know, they, if they, if they really, if you're attacking their family, they'll kill you. you yeah. Know? But sure. they were always so gentle. They knew us individually. Yeah. Um, you know, we could walk into a group and it's such a special feeling that you could walk into a group and they'll turn and maybe look at you and then go back to feeding. Right. And then a stranger walks into the group and they turn and they take off. Yeah. Yeah. And they know you and they, they're like, okay, we're, we're fine with you, you know, but, um, or if you come into a group and they know the person. So when you went to the group, you're a stranger, but you're with someone they know very well, the right. tracker, right? Right. Right. They trust the tracker. The tracker goes in first, right? Yep, yep. Absolutely. He reassures them with some vocalizations, of, yep. you know, yep. which is right. Yeah. So he, he's, he's your ticket. You, yeah. you couldn't do that if you were without him. You know, he, he, right. he they trust him. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and it just makes me think. You know, this um, when you talk about conservation and the poachers, we know this is a big issue. Um, and it's it's just awful to think about. And even in general, the idea that people sometimes have about animals not having feelings and they're just here for us to use as we need to use them, and they're dangerous and all of these things. You know, people. I think people can benefit from having experiences like that because you really do start to understand. As you say, these are sentient beings. They have feelings. They know and don't, you know, and don't trust everybody for good reason. They're mm -hmm. not just crazy wild animals out there waiting to kill you for no reason. Mm -hmm. And so we need to go and protect ourselves from them. Yeah. And so this idea of how we as humans learn to interact with the animal world in a way that makes sense for all, for both of us, right? For humans and for the animals. I think is an invaluable thing for people to really understand. And it's hard to understand that if you haven't had experiences like this. Yeah. And I think like your experience with horses, that counts. I mean, yeah. I, I, that, you know, just experience with other animals, it counts. And I mean, that led us to start our, you know, we, we, we have this human animal interaction research initiative. We, we study human animal interaction because we want to understand you know, the qualities of them, the, the benefits, the costs, all that, you know, what is happening when you have this interaction? There's a lot of claims out there without any supporting evidence. So we were all about, well, how do we capture the evidence and how do we teach students how to find the evidence, most importantly? How do you ask a question about that? And I, this, um, you know, interacting with animals is, <sighs> I think there is a difference between individual humans, as I said, some with different animality, right, you know, right. but I think also recognizing that there's all, there's just as much individuality in the animals. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a complex complementary situation sometimes. So in the gorillas, you know, I, I just said, they're very gentle. There was some that were just extremely aggressive towards humans. Yeah. And I know there was a background, there was a history of mm -hmm. some trauma there that I, you know, I respect you, Fuddle, you know, I'm not going to get close to you. I know that if I get too close, you're going to attack. And I know there's, you're an old lady. I know there's a history there yeah. that something happened. And so these individual differences has now translated for us that we're looking at, you know, we teach courses on uh, primate welfare and captivity. 
and it's not just about, well, what's good for the gorillas in captivity, but right. the individual and their history and their personality. And, you know, that is now the new way of looking out for welfare of animals in our care. It used to be just provide them the right nutrition, a good place to stay. Maybe it looks kind of pretty. Maybe the temperature's okay. No, that's just, that's basic welfare. We're right. looking at flourishing. Yeah. And for you to flourish, I need to understand who you are, Jess. I, you know, what's your history? What, do you, what are you afraid of? What do you like? What, and that's true of these animals in our care. They have an individual history. And it's almost like approaching it like, um, like, like, like a clinician, yeah. You know, they take your personal history. I mean, when do you have you ever gone to a doctor that doesn't take your personal history? They they need to know that to understand right. what's good for you. Right. So that's a new phase of animal welfare. Oh wow. It's so good to hear. And it actually the work you're doing translates so well to humans because we're also starting to hear people talk about this for humans. Like we don't think enough about the trauma that we've all experienced as young people and how that influences where we go in life. And mm -hmm. so, you know, we always, it seems to be like, we're such a society where we just wait for the problems and then we try to fix the problems when they arise. Instead of asking the questions early, like when kids are young and in school, why does that child act that way in class? If they're not a bad child, but mm -hmm. why do they act that way? Is there something going on at home? Is there something they're afraid of? Is there something that they're not getting that they need to help nurture them as a young child? Maybe yeah. they have learning disability. Maybe they are they don't have the confidence because of something that's going on with them. But we wait until, oh, now they're in juvie. Now we got to figure out how to fix the problem when it's already too late in some ways. And it's very similar, it sounds like, with animals, right? Is they all have experiences that are going to contribute to how they behave, whether they're in the wild or in captivity. Yeah, exactly right. But but bringing that framework to the animal world, that's a big that's a big shift. Yeah. You know, bringing that 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 frame of mind that this is an individual with a history, yeah. and that you need to dive that their development is just as much an important part of understanding them as their digestion system. You know, right. So that we just keeping that in mind just like we need to do with our children. Absolutely, I would totally agree. We know, I mean, we have amazing science that tells us the, the in, incredible impact of events on young, on the young, epigenetic effects, even in utero, Yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, I'm always asking, did I affect my son in utero when I was hiking up those volcanoes and not enough oxygen, you know? <laughs> so, right, right. <laughs> I know we all ask these questions when, as our kids get older, like what am I yeah. influence them good and bad? Like we work about yeah. You don't often think about that with animals, which is so mm -hmm. fascinating. So um, I do want to ask you before we wrap up though, are there any sort of what you would consider maybe the most interesting or most impactful things that you've learned from any of the animals you've studied? Like, is there anything that has come out of your work where you're like, wow, this is this could be really impactful in terms of understanding either animals or humans? Well, I, th I think there's something that we're working on that that I had an, in, you know, we ha I have kind of a feeling about, but I don't have a good evidence. And I think we're trying to understand the emotional interior life of animals. Oh, wow. And that experience with the gorillas in the wild and the experience, even you know, with dogs that we just rescued or something, that it all comes down to what is that inner life? And I don't know your inner life, Jess, unless I can ask you and you tell me. Right. But if but if you can't tell me, 
how do I figure out what your inner life, what emotions are you feeling? Do I look at some biological markers? Do I look at your behavior? Are those reliable? What if we could have an animal tell us what they want and how they're feeling? Right. So we're, we're kind of designing and working with some folks to, to work with like the, the language trained apes. Oh yeah. You know, they, they were trained because there was an interest in language acquisition. Mm-hmm. We're like, I don't really care about it, language acquisition. I want to know what they want to tell me about how they're feeling. Yeah. How they're feeling. And if we could get a way to communicate with them, either through sign language, either through symbols, you know, now we have dogs that can press buttons that say, you know, I want to go outside or I want to play. It, it gives them a voice. It gives them a communication channel. You know, yeah. we have a communication channel with our dogs and our pets. We don't really think of it that way, but we kind of know what they want. They kind of know. But what if you can really formalize that even for the wild animals in captivity? What if they could tell us that they're not feeling good? You don't have to rely on, oh, are they limping? Are they not eating enough? How about they either sign or press a button that says not feeling good? So, you know, uh, I, there's, a, there's a new a new push for trying to have a scientific understanding, a scientific basis of the understanding. I think we have a feeling that of, of course they have feelings. Of course yeah. they feel sad, sure. but trying to get at that in a more refined way and then how to use that to communicate. So we're hoping that with some of these uh, language trained apes that we can, we can try to get at that inner world. Because when we're talking about welfare of animals in our care, whether they're domestic or wild, um, we're always pushing to try to get them not just on the basic, okay, they're not suffering, but on towards flourishing. Sure. Flourishing. And that means we really need to know about their mental life. And that's where I think that's the way that's where we need to go with the human animal relationship is try to understand that. And that's, that's a tough nut because Oh, wow. Like I said, there's no talking. (laughs) I know that is tough. I was actually going to ask you before when you were talking about their past trauma. I mean, how would you know? And, you know, a gorilla can't say to you, I was attacked when I was a baby or, you know, my my mother abandoned me when I was a baby or, you know, the things that humans can talk about in therapy and get out and, you know, you start to learn what it is that makes someone who they are. But it seems to me like if you could start to understand from some of them through communication, what feelings they're experiencing, and then couple that with behaviors, mm-hmm. that then you might be able to go back into the wild and observe behavior and then try to sort of reverse engineer is, are there behaviors that correspond with certain feelings that we tend to see over and over again? Oh, nice. That's a great idea. And, and we've always relied on like physiology and behavior and pairing that up and then just looking at behavior, but self-report and behavior, and then go and look at for the behavior. That's a great idea. Yes. Absolutely. I suppose it could be possible probably really tricky, but, um, and I'm, I would imagine that not all just like humans, right. Not all gorillas that have the same trauma will behave in the same way either, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, we do know with humans that there are similar behaviors often amongst people who have experienced certain traumas. Yes. Um, and yeah. so, you, just, you know, I, I could see here some really fertile ground and how exciting. I, I mean, I would, I hope this happens in my lifetime because I would love to be around when, when gorillas start communicating with language about how they're feeling. I just think that would be absolutely amazing. Yeah, that, that would be certainly help them in their care for sure. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, 
I have mixed feelings about having wild animals in captivity, I'll be honest, you know, sure. but if they're in our care, how can we make it best, you know, for them? So yeah, that's, yeah. that's cool. Yeah. So where are you off to next? Do you have any field work coming up once we're past Corona? Yeah, we got to get past this Corona stuff because yeah, we're, you know, one thing that, um, we've really started thinking a lot about is we, we teach this large gen ed course on human animal interrelationships through history. And we've focused a lot on, you know, the domestication of animals and yeah. our dogs and cats and horses and camels and everything. And it's such a rich history. And these are amazing animals. And we think, oh, they're just our domesticated animals. No, they're just as cool as gorillas. I'm telling you, there's some really cool stuff out. So yeah. we're, we're thinking about forming another study abroad course that is about this, about the domesticated animals in our lives and the history of that and how what a tremendous impact animals have had on our culture, our biology, our psychology. I mean, huge impact there that we talk about in our, in our general education kind of first year class. Yeah. But going and experiencing it and being in the Alps with these Alpine cows. I mean, we've done, we do all these things for fun. And we're like, I would love to expose students to this so that they get to, to experience it too. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a great, that's a great plan. I hope that that comes to fruition someday when we're able to move about freely again without fear. Um, Definitely. Yeah. So yeah. we'll, and we'll see about Africa. I, uh, you know, there's always stuff going on there. So um, I, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm a wild child. Let's just see where it goes. <laughs> well, I may be contacting you because we're considering some Africa work for our next sabbatical break. Um, not looking at animals, looking at some some interesting geological features, but still, I think we would be in contact with quite a few, you know, places where the wild animals. It would be good to know sort of what's going on there. And oh yeah, for sure. No, and that you know, well, maybe you'll go back to the volcanoes or who's that? Is it Cohen, Dr. Cohen that does the sedimentation in the in the lakes in that area and everything? Yeah, and so yeah. really I'm neat. Honest, yeah, but my husband looks at. Um, wind features is some of his work is wind features and the relationship between wind and then tectonics and how they interact with each other to create different landscapes. And so there's some places in the sort of Western uh, parts of Africa, like um, over in Namibia, where there's a lot of these wind features near the coast. And so we, we had thought about, you know, spending some time in that part of also going into South Africa, maybe into uh, Mozambique and looking at the falls. We've never been to the falls there. So, you know, just sort of making a whole transit sure. out of it and going around that portion of Africa to see the geology, I think would be absolutely fascinating. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's yeah. the world's your oyster. <laughs> Let's hope. So maybe we'll drag our kids and I'll be able to look back on it someday and appreciate that experience. But um now, my last question before we sign off is, um, do you have any uh, students that work with you in any way or capacity? Yeah, so, uh, you know, as we said, we did this study abroad that, that took students out there, but we also studied this, what we call the Harry Lab, Human-Animal Interaction Research Initiative, hmm. uh, because we wanna understand that influence of humans on animals, animals on humans. And a primary reason is not, you know, we're not out there writing big grants to, you know, get NSFs and NIHs and no, the, it's meant to be primarily for students to get trained on how to answer questions about humans and animals. Okay. How do you know if it's true that equine therapy works? Yeah. You know, how, yeah. Do, you, how do you know? So it's training them with those tools. Well, how would you answer? How would you formulate the question and then test it? How would you do that? 
So it's meant for undergraduates to work with us and we do a research project. I mean, we've got one that we're finishing up right now where we took dogs into an ICU ward to relieve stress for the nurses. Yeah, oh wow. I mean, we're always there for the patients, but the yeah. nurses are stressed out. Yeah. So, you know, does, does that, does it work? How do we know it works? Right. So we collected biomarkers. We compared it to a fake dog versus a real dog. I mean, you know, you try all these things and students are every step of the way, just going from step zero to step, you know, publication. So it's, it's, and it doesn't mean that they're going to be researchers. That's sure. their career. It's that they understand, first of all, they could read a paper and understand what went into it. What are the flaws? What are the, you know, but also if they want to ask a question in whatever field they're going in, they yeah. have kind of a method for how do you do it in a, yeah. in that, you know, using that kind of scientific rigor. Absolutely. Which is so important now more than ever, just to even have people understand that, you know, science is not just people waving their arms around saying whatever they want, that there is a process here that makes this rigorous and that leads to our understanding that then should inform decisions like how we deal with a global pandemic, for example. Exactly. Yeah. And what influence, I mean, wow, we could have a whole other podcast on the connection of animals to the pandemic. Right. Oh my God. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's a good point. So many threads there of the oh. animal connection to the pandemic and the future of vaccines and the future, you know, it all has to do either animal testing or people doing, you know, I've just read that there's some, some uh, speculation that people are doing kind of testing vaccines, unofficial vaccines for the, for animals uh, so that their the livestock so that they can continue their livestock not in this country but in other countries so that their livestock don't get certain back don't don't get um, covid uh, and their unofficial vaccines of, out there which could then kind of push the evolution of the virus and so I mean there's it's all with animals right animals no. <laughs> right. Oh, wow. So if students are interested, is there a website they should go to? Yeah. Look for, I think it's harry.arizona.edu. Harry H A I R I. Okay. I will put it in the bio for this episode. So that's really exciting. Um, I want to thank you so much for your time. I know you're very busy and I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. This was fascinating. This was fun, Jess. Well, let's uh, let's talk about our trip together, okay? Absolutely. All right. Well, take care and keep going. We need more research with animals. I'm really excited. Oh, well, that's because you're high on animality. I guess so. <laughs> All right. It was so good to talk to you. you too, Jess.